It's a bit like, you know, when you go to the hairdresser and it's awful, you just never go back. You don't phone up the hairdresser and say, well, here's the things I don't like. You just don't ever go back. And the same is true for a commentator. If you do not do the job your client was expecting, they just don't call again. That's it. You never get feedback (laughs) ever. Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Mella, founder of the Skylark Collective and the International Women's Podcast Awards. And each week, I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you, to let you know how they got where they are and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. If you're a regular listener to Smashing the Ceiling or you've heard about the Skylark Collective, you'll know by now that I'm all about raising up other women. And since you last heard from me, as well as a lot of new podcasts, I've also been enjoying Femme Foundry, a one-of-a-kind global community for womankind to discover, learn, connect and thrive. One of the key components that sets Femme Foundry apart is their focus on the multifaceted aspects of a woman's life from her career to her wellness, from her spirituality to her mental health. This, along with their founding team and Femme Foundry's global partners, mean they are uniquely positioned as a media powerhouse for women's empowerment on a large scale. With a new improved 2.0 version of the app just launched, Femme Foundry has huge global ambitions with a mission to become the bumble of humanised female networking, learning and support. So download Femme Foundry today and have a look. I would love to know your thoughts. It's just a really beautiful, wild part of the world. And I think it's somewhere that you can really, if you allow it, your imagination can just go crazy because there's so much you can do, so many adventures to be had. And as a child, that's uh, such a great way to grow up. My first guest of 2022 is Katie Friend, who says of her adventures that she will always be a completer rather than a competer. Given the challenges she's completed, which includes the world's toughest ski mountaineering race and the half marathon de Sable, and the things she's done in her career, completing any of them would be considered a strong achievement as far as I'm concerned. Katie grew up in southwest Scotland, and after travelling solo around the world, she embarked on a career in events management then found her way into radio and is now a multilingual sports commentator, presenter, podcaster and coach. She lives in Verbier in the Swiss Alps with her family. In this conversation, we discuss solo travel as a woman, surviving a difficult boss and a nightmare job, the difference between a job and a career, the paradox of age versus wisdom and why sometimes it's best not to overthink it. A word that crops up quite a lot with me and I sense with you as well is that of freedom and adventure did you have quite a free childhood do you think looking back on it now 
in many ways, yes, uh, in terms of outdoors and activities. And I read quite a lot of books about adventure. And one of the recurring themes that you find is people who, like me, had a lot of freedom when they were growing up. And, you know, it's become a bit of a cliche now, I think. But, you know, the whole we were just sent out and told to come back when we were hungry, you know, and it's it was absolutely true. And And my brother and I, spent a lot of time, just the two of us, kicking about, climbing trees, building dens, discovering caves, going down to this really quite dangerous river, which I took my own kids to recently. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) we totally just used to clamber down here. My mum and dad had no idea where we were, how long we'd been out, you know, when we'd be coming back. There was no anything. And it made me realise that despite the fact I think I'm quite a cool parent. I am actually way more helicoptery than than my parents were for sure. (laughs) So how do you foster an adventurous spirit in a child? I asked Katie about her parents and whether what they did and how they did it impacted her own actions. I'll tell you the story I always used to tell. When I was 23 and I went I went traveling around the world by myself um, and I used to meet people who'd go oh my god you're here on your own. How are your parents not worried? And I used to say, look, my dad climbed Aconcagua for the last time when he was 69. And my mum drove aid lorries, articulated aid lorries into Bosnia and Croatia during the war. Wow. So yes, the answer is yes. There was always a sense of outdoor adventure. My dad was big into his mountaineering. I remember when I was six, he went off to the Himalayas for a month. And there's quite a big age difference between my mum and dad, but they they always were doing stuff. My mum rode, uh, well, she still rides horses, you know, so they were, I don't think it was actively encouraged, like people actively encourage their children to do stuff these days. It was just what we saw. That's what we saw and that's what we did. And how do you think with regard to your career, what your mum in particular was doing shaped your own views about what you might do with your life and career? Oh, that's a very interesting question, actually, because I was just talking to this to somebody about this the other day. My mum was a stay-at-home mum, and all of my friends had stay-at-home mums. And I never, ever considered that I would have a career. I considered that I would probably work, but then I would get married and have kids, and I would be a stay-at-home mum. I didn't... It horrifies me now to think that, and it wasn't... I don't think ever explicitly said, but there was never any, you know, I remember my brother being told, well, you need to get a job because you're going to have a family to support. And, uh, you know, sounds just so hideously (laughs) old fashioned, but that's the way it kind of was. And so I didn't, yeah, I didn't see myself ever having a career ever. Because, yeah, I just saw my mum. And how did your mum end up driving aid lorries in Bosnia then from being a stay-at-home mum? That's kind of a fascinating leap. Well, she got her her HGV licence to drive horse boxes. She ended up going with a minister from a local church, not our church. And she uh, said, well, I'll do it. And I, I remember going to see her off and seeing her climb into this enormous, enormous huge thing and hauling out of the car park and I was just like oh my god bye (laughs) ma'am yeah and if you're asking me how that influenced me about 10 years later I went on to get my own HGV license so there you go (laughs) you'd be in demand these days 
I was really interested by the distinction Katie made between getting a job and having a career. These days work often seems so glamorised. So much is made of our career journey, how to plan for that and achieve your goals, etc, etc, that the idea of just having a job seems to have disappeared completely. I asked Katie what her view on that was these days. Yeah, I went to university and studied French and medieval history. And, you know, the only thing anyone ever thought I would do, uh, you either became a teacher or an air stewardess. That's all everyone, <laughs> anyone ever, ever said. I think, see, I think people nowadays think about, you know, getting a job. Getting a job is something you do to earn a bit of money before you do something else kind of thing. That's what we did. Or I had a job in the summer to earn money to go back to uni kind of thing. Um, but yeah, for me, I just was going to get a job and I would just figure it out as I went along. Mm. But you actually delayed getting a job and went off to travel around the world after university. Um, and I love that you travelled alone, Katie. Um, I'm a big fan of solo travel and we have talked about that on the podcast before with various people. What was it that gave you the confidence and also just made you want to do that alone first of all? Well, I was inspired by my cousin who was a lot older than me. When I was about 11, she came back from travelling around the world and uh, she did the classic, you know, back in those days, you come home with about six photo albums full of <laughs> photos and all the grown-ups were like, yeah, 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 that sounds great. And I was absolutely fascinated. I loved, I loved all those stories. It just completely sparked a fire in me that I hadn't really had ever. Uh, but I just knew, I like, I didn't do the milk round. I didn't do any of that things. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do other than go traveling. And I just used to sit with maps and books, you know, it was pre-internet. And in terms of going on my own, I really like doing stuff on my own. And I'm much, I'm much more comfortable with it now in terms of, you know, being who I am. At the time, it was a bit scary because I missed having someone who knew me, who knew my quirks and my humor and that sort of thing but I just wanted to go and I didn't know anybody else I want that wanted to do it and there was talk of at one point of a boyfriend joining me and I was like uh, well no <laughs> I'm not hanging about I'm going I've made my plans I'm going so I went if you're someone who enjoys solitude you'll understand what I mean when I talk about the satisfaction that being alone can bring I've travelled alone at various points in my life to various places and whilst it was mostly an incredibly rewarding experience, I now look back at some of my decisions and their consequences and think, I got away with that one. Youth and naivety are real, powerful suppressors of our sense of danger and sometimes we feel invincible when we really shouldn't. And sometimes people, particularly women, are put off solo travel due to fears around their personal safety and the difficulties they may face, especially in an unfamiliar country where you don't speak the language. I asked Katie whether she ever considered this. Well, I think the main thing I did was I started, I went the other way around. I went the way around that people don't normally go. So I went to the States first because I, I knew at the time that that would ease me in because at least I was speaking the language and it would be reasonably familiar because, you know, we all grew up with American movies and TV programs. Even then, 
it's even more so now but even then you know you have a it feels vaguely familiar and I'd also spent a year in Canada when I was 16 so I kind of knew I felt comfortable with that so that was my allowance if you like for easing myself in and feeling a bit more secure but then I traveled for two months across the states east to west on the Greyhound bus and you tell Americans that and they go, you did what? <laughs> oh my God, that's, that, there's just the Greyhound buses full of crazy people. <laughs> and a bit like you, I look back and think, holy cow, seriously. Like I used to travel overnight so that I could, you know, do stuff during the day. And, you know, I'm nearly six foot tall. So I, the thought now of curling myself into two bus seats and sleeping overnight just fills me with horror. But at the time, that's what I did. And I stayed with people I didn't know. I got taken places. But I mean, it was <laughs> crazy. So yeah, I think there's a lot of youth and naivety. But also, I think, and I interviewed on my own podcast, Elspeth Beard, I don't know if you know who that is, but she, uh, about 10 years before I did that, she motorcycled around the world on her own for two years. And her story is unbelievable. So cool. And the reason I mentioned her is because when I interviewed her, she said she's nearly, she's about the same height as me. And she said she felt like it gave her a bit of an advantage or I mean, not an advantage, but certainly being a tall woman, I think probably helped, but I'm not entirely sure. Who knows? <laughs> Crazy stuff still happened. And, and having a daughter now, I just go, oh my God, I'm going to have to really seriously just bite my tongue when she starts doing stuff like that, because I just went and we had no, I had no mobile. I had no email address. I just went. Yeah, I know. And, you know, I can remember like the first time I was away on my own, it, there was email available, but I didn't phone my parents for like, you know, six weeks at a time or something. And eventually I'd find a payphone and give them a call and be like, I'm alive, you know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and actually, I can remember writing those really long emails of everything I've been up to and, and sort of sending them back and them really appreciating them because it was the sort of stories and accounts, I suppose. But it's, it's funny to think back on that now in the days of instant communication. And I think travel has just changed irrevocably with the internet, hasn't it, really? Um, I really hope that your daughter does feel confident enough to do that in time. I hope so too. I hope so too. So after being away, you started in, in corporate events. Um, how did you land up in that when you got back to England? Um, well, I may correct you by saying I got back to Scotland, but oh, anyway. Scotland. Sorry, uh, <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> um, I went to live in Edinburgh because I, my friend, I, loads of my friends from uni had moved to Edinburgh. And in those days, certainly moving home was not a thing. Like, that was it. I was out. I was gone. And so, you know, I was home for a bit and then I, like maybe a, a month. And then I just moved to Edinburgh. I got a temping job and then I landed my first salaried job working in a you know when you go into museums and art galleries and you see the little magnets that are the sort of miniature versions of the paintings mm. um well that's and mouse mats and that sort of thing I worked for that for a company doing that and a girl came in one Monday morning we had a temp in and uh we were chatting about what she'd done at the weekend and she said I was working on an event and I was like oh that sounds cool and it was sort of outdoor events you know clay pigeon shooting and 
Land Rovers and quad bikes. And I was like, oh man, that sounds amazing. And she said, oh, she said, Katie, you'd love it. You'd be so good at it. You're so bossy. (laughs) And I was like, okay. (laughs) And it really, again, sparked that level of that sort of excitement and thought of adventure that the traveling had. And, you know, I was really loving living in Edinburgh. Uh, You know, I had a boyfriend and friends were all there, but I was, I really wasn't enjoying my job. And so I basically went home and I, really dating myself now, but I basically got out the yellow pages and I phoned every single event company in Edinburgh, of which there were about 14 or 15, not a huge amount. And I said, hello, I have no experience, but I'd like a job, please. (laughs) And uh, eventually someone said, well, that's good timing because my operations manager has just resigned. Uh, So do you want to come and see me? And yeah, and the rest is history. And I I ended up absolutely loving it. It was the best decision I ever made because it turns out I am really bossy and I was good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's not the only reason that you're good at it. Oh, and also bossy, never a word that is ever applied to a man. I hate that. No, Um, (laughs) no, no. What's that all about? (laughs) What is that all about? So you did that for quite a while in the end, working in events. Well, I did two years in Edinburgh and, you know, you talk about if you, you know, Steve Jobs always talked about the joining the dots backwards. <laughs> and I would say that is probably one of the most formative two years of my life. I'm still friends with my old boss. In fact, my husband is uh, a mountaineering friends with him now. And he just made a huge impact on my life, a really massive impact. In what way, Katie? Oh, um, he, well, he was ex-army and so he was very organized. He was, oh, his levels of enthusiasm for everything were just off the scale and which is quite difficult, can be quite difficult to work for because he was just like a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time, you know, hundred miles an hour, hundred percent of the time. Uh, but so inspiring, so creative, so and just and really good to me because I had no idea what I was doing and he gave me so much he gave me a lot of advice but he also gave me a lot of leeway and responsibility and just you know I think to begin with I was a bit crap really but he <laughs> he believed in me and he encouraged me and gave me huge projects and taught me a lot about discipline because he was ex-army. So a lot of it was very sort of, you know, learning things I hadn't learned before, like how to get properly organized, how to, you know, stick at something, you know, and he gave me the opportunity to learn to teach off-road driving to, you know, I was out and about in the mud and the rain and the just, you know, I loved all that. I just loved it. I really, really loved it. Um, I don't know, you can probably tell from my voice, it was just mm. a really special and amazing time. And I, obviously I appreciate, as we always do, appreciate that more now. But even at the time, it was something I just, I loved it. Mm. I loved it. But I find it really interesting to chat about the impact that, you know, mentors is perhaps a little bit formal in this sense, but clearly this person has been a strong mentor in your working life. And actually, I think it's a really interesting conversation to have about 
how those people have impacted your life and your career and what they've done for you so that others can learn about what has been formative and important for other people. And and actually, I love when you say that he believed in you. That's what it is all about, isn't it? It's this thing of believing that somebody else has the potential and then allowing them to flourish, despite the fact that at the beginning, in your words, they might be a bit crap. Um, yeah. but, but but actually, they, it's about seeing potential, I think, isn't it? And for somebody to do that for you in your career is incredible whether it's a man or a woman or anybody to help you and not necessarily give you a leg up but just to give you the time that you need to develop and therefore to flourish I think yeah no it's absolutely true and I had no real belief in myself and when I did move on from there I phoned him once to say oh my god I've been given this huge event to do and I oh I can't believe it and he said well I can believe it you're perfectly capable I don't I don't know what you're worrying about and me thinking wow, I didn't, I actually didn't really know that. Well, I I knew, but I didn't know that he believed in me that much, you know, and I left him because I followed a boyfriend south. And even by the time I'd moved, the boy, the the relationship had fizzled out, but I had the job offer and I just thought, I'm just going to go. And, you know, I'm, but I was so grateful for the, the strength and the belief that he had given me in my abilities before I moved into what turned out to be, well, what eventually turned out to be a really good job, but what started off as an absolute horror story. And so, uh, but I was lucky that I'd had, I had the belief that he gave me behind me. Ah, the horror story job. I've had one in my career, have you? We don't often talk about them too much. Maybe you just survive. Maybe you leave. Maybe you end up being incredibly ground down by the end. It's only by lifting the rock on our experiences like this that we learn the techniques to manage these situations and learn when to stick and when to quit. So I was in this next job for four years and the first year is probably one of the hardest, hardest years of my life because I went from having this incredibly supportive small team, amazing sort of leeway, and not leeway is the wrong word, but freedom to do, you know, to run my projects and, and, you know, being critiqued and, and how to improve, but in a positive and really empowering, I guess is a, is the word one uses now, but it, it certainly wasn't something we used back in the day. But, and then I went to this job where it was a much, much bigger company with huge amounts of staff and my direct boss had basically said just make up your own job and I just wasn't experienced enough and I didn't know what that meant and I didn't know who to ask for help and it turns out long story short that he was this absolute horror story that was dividing and to conquer all of the people that we that I worked with directly that worked under him and he eventually left and we all discovered because in the first year, everybody I worked with hated me. And I do not use that term lightly because we're friends now and they're like, yeah, you were just a nightmare. But I was so scared and afraid and I didn't know, I didn't believe in myself and I had this guy not giving me any support and I didn't know that I could ask or should ask. And I just kept saying, 
I'm just going to stick it out for a year. I'm going to stick it out for a year because I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to admit that I had made this horrible mistake. And it was just awful. I really hated it. And then this horrible boss got fired and things turned around. And I realised that, you know, I was, I was partly responsible myself in many ways. I had gone in, I had been the boss of my team when I left and I kind of went in thinking that that's how I would be there and it wasn't like that. And and I tried to make up for it by, you know, going out and I'm a I love a party. So, you know, and especially when you work in events, you work hard and you play hard. But it, you know, then I started feeling like, oh, I'm just trying to party because I want people to like me, but maybe then they don't. And, you know, the whirling nonsense. And and I'd just come out of this long-term relationship for which I'd upped sticks and moved all the way down south to Hertfordshire by myself. And so it was just a pretty miserable year, to be honest. And then actually it turned out that we all were really quite good at our jobs. And once we were pulling in the right direction, we made a phenomenal team. And I ended up having three of the best years of my life after that. And I'm still friends with all those people that thought I was a complete cow. So there we go. (laughs) Happy ending. Um, (laughs) But that's so interesting, isn't it? And thank you for your honesty and sharing that, Katie, because I think think it is really important to, to talk about to those sorts of experiences in the workplace because we don't discuss them that much. And, you know, I had a job where I felt so destroyed and demoralized and my confidence was through the floor and I had a boss that was volatile and unpredictable and difficult. And and those sorts of things, you feel so alone when you're in that situation as well. And I'm really glad we've talked about this because it's not something that, you know, this is a podcast where we talk about careers and we discuss people's careers and yet we actually don't have these conversations all that often. Um, And so, yeah, thank you for your candor on that one. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. And if I may just add to that, you were talking earlier about people that, you know, support you and have your back. When this horrible, immediate, direct boss left, I then ended up with the most incredible boss who I just, I just loved. He, he filled the role of my previous boss, the one in Scotland, in that he was empowering and he was fun and open and he was strict, you know, he wanted us, you know, he expected hard work and good results, but he was always there. You could always knock on his door. And as it turned out, the owner of the company, he um, believed in me more than I knew because it turns out that at some at one point in that first year, someone had tried the the the, the bad boss, if you like, had tried to get rid of me, and he said, "Hang on to her, and you can take her salary out of my salary for six months, and if she doesn't prove herself, then do what you want with her, you know, get rid of her." And I didn't know that till years later somebody told me that he had believed in me so much and seen so much potential that he, yeah, he did that. And I've actually never been able to thank him, but I will one day. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there you go. You've done it publicly now. (laughs) So, so just moving on from there, tell me about moving to Switzerland because I mean, you've, you obviously moved from Scotland to London, well, Hertfordshire, and then the next move came to go to Verbier. How did that come about, Katie? And how did you kind of up sticks from 
what became a successful job in events into moving to a ski resort in the mountains? Well, it's the same old story. It involved a boy (laughs) (laughs) Um, who eventually became my husband. So it's all good. Um, But so I was working in events and I had got to the stage where I was managing some pretty big stuff, all corporate events. Um, And I had met my boyfriend who then became my husband and he had this plan to come to Verbier to set up an off-piste ski school. And I was actually getting quite, uh, as I say, it was a work hard, play hard environment. And I was pretty worn down. I have to say I was drinking a lot and I don't, wouldn't say I had a drinking problem, but it was a lot and, you know, working insane hours and stress levels were through the roof, like proper full on stress. And he said, look, I'm going to go to Verbi for a season. If you want, give up your job and come with me and help me set up the ski school. I'll bankroll it and you can decide what you want to do after that, you know, set up on your own, do what you like, whatever which was the most incredible opportunity and one for which I will always be grateful because, you know, we don't often get that opportunity to take a break or take a, a career break or whatever you want to call it without, with the, with the financial backup. And so it was an enormous opportunity. And so that's how we ended up here for our first season. And I worked for the ski school, not teaching, but, you know, admin and, just all the stuff that goes with setting up a new business sort of thing and skied and had a great time. And yeah, it was just gave me that opportunity and, and uh, to, to be here and we were here for a season. And then I did go home and actually set up my own events company for a couple of years as well. So it was a great, it's a great opportunity. Hmm. And you went on to become a radio presenter in Verbier. How how did you get into that? Because obviously presenting, we, we've gone on a very long and circuitous route en route, but, um, you know, obviously presenting, hosting, etc. has become a very big part of your career now, Katie. How did you kind of dip your toe in to radio to begin with? So we're fast forwarding a couple, a few years because, well, we were actually coming for 18 months and we've been here nearly 12 years, but, you know, hey-ho. And we, when we arrived... I was looking in a local uh, magazine and it said that Mountain Radio Verbier had just set up. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds amazing. And (laughs) I basically just phoned them up and said, can I have a job or can I do stuff? And the, the fact is I had wanted to be a radio presenter since I was a little girl. I had a radio presenter, uh, uh, character who I became, whose name, don't ask me why, I have no idea, but his name was Jinker Jones. <laughs> and I <laughs> I was Jinker Jones. Welcome to the show. Lovely to see you or lovely to hear you. Thanks for joining us. Next up, we've got this song by that person. Da, da, da. So like for me <laughs> to get the opportunity to actually work on a radio was like a childhood dream come true. And so I did uh, three years with them, well, three winter seasons, two winter seasons doing the lunchtime show and one season as the breakfast show host, which was amazing. And I learned all sorts of things. I learned to do live shows. I did learn to do pre-recorded, uh, you know, it stuff, how to interview people, how to do outside broadcasts, just, 
oh, so much stuff that has been so useful to me. Now, I'm probably biased because I'm a podcaster and I'm pretty happy talking into a microphone in a small, dark, quiet room. But the idea of standing in front of a TV camera presenting live sport makes my palms a little bit sweaty and I can feel my heart beat a little faster just thinking about it. Local radio is an incredible springboard for many presenters, though. It's an intimate medium with lots of opportunities for experience and progression, as Katie mentioned. But she made the leap and transitioned into sports commentary, race calling and television presenting. How does that happen? Plenty of people love skiing and want to work on TV, and it often feels like these opportunities are gold dust. Sometimes you just have to be in the right place at the right time. Well, actually, it was because of them that I got into sports commentating because the International Ski Mountaineering Federation were holding a World Cup here in Verbier. And on about two days before, they decided they needed an English-speaking commentator to work alongside the French speaker. And on the first day, my boss did it. And on the second day, he wasn't available. So I went off to do it. And I knew absolutely nothing, like less than nothing about race ski mountaineering racing despite living in a ski resort hilarious yeah <laughs> uh but I, you know my kids were tiny 2014 I had a six-year-old and a four-year-old and so I wasn't really I was still pretty much in the thick of it of the you know I hadn't really been doing much sport wise um anyway I just stood next to the French speaker and basically translated all weekend like all day and they loved what I did and asked me back because they were holding the world championships here the following year and said would you would I come and do the whole week and when I got to the end of that week uh, which I loved and I was just like completely hooked I the one of the organizers from Andorra who holds the world cup every year came to me and said would you consider coming to Andorra and working for us, it, you know, to, to come and do our World Cup weekend. And just that, you know, another influential, pivotal point in my life, I thought, oh, well, like I could actually just, like I could do this as a thing. Right. Okay. And so from there, I just sort of chased it up. And every year I chased up and I chased all the World Cup organizers. And I said, right, here I am. I've done this. I know how to do that. You know, a lot like a lot of people at the beginning of their careers, you sort of bluffing it, faking it till you make it type, type thing. And then about three years ago, the Federation actually said, right, no more of this. We're going to make you our official sport commentator for the Federation. There are two of us, actually, um, because both of us have kids. So we sort of slightly take turns, I guess, um, of traveling around Europe. Uh, being the uh, commentator for the International Ski Mountaineering Federation. And from there, that just kind of blossomed. People heard that's what I did and people and I asked, got asked to do triathlon and trail running and uh, all sorts of kind of sports that you just sort of have to learn on the go and just, you know, make it up. <laughs> <laughs> and, how, and how do you get skilled at doing that? Because I think it is one of the... It's one thing I really noticed with presenters is that often you don't get that much prep time and you go no. to an event, you're thrown in and actually sometimes you might not have a clue about the thing you are presenting about. What's your sort of insights into how you manage that? Is it all prep and research or how do you kind of get good at that, I guess, Katie? Um, a lot of fear. <laughs> <laughs> 
a lot of very sweaty palms <laughs> and throwing yourself in. And, and I'm very fortunate because the majority of stuff I do is a race announcing. So I'm actually on the race course itself, as opposed to in front of a camera or live streaming. Um, but I do more and more of that now. But when I first started, and the, the other thing that was an advantage for me was that a lot of the people that listen to me are not not natural English. They're not, sorry, they're not native English speakers. So <laughs> a lot of the time I could just waffle away and any kind of mistakes might be sort of glossed over. But I think for me, the confidence came with just practice. I guess it's like everything. It's practice, getting to know the athletes, the coaches, the organizers, the federation, understanding the sport. And then, you know, I sort of took off into actually practicing the sport myself. And therefore I understood a lot more about the actual ins and outs of in specifically in, in trail running and ski mountaineering. I kind of understood a little bit more about what it actually entails, not to any high level at all, but at least just doing it. And also it becomes, it comes to, you get to a point, I suppose, like a lot of things where other people believe you can do it. So you sort of go, well, I can't be that bad because they've asked me back again. <laughs> <laughs> and as it comes, you know, when it comes to a new sport, you know, a lot of the chat is the same. You know, a lot of, you know, you've got to have your specifics and know your players or your, you know, athletes or, you know, the basics of the rules and so on. But often I'm working with a co-commentator who is knowledgeable or you can bounce off. Not only do you learn, but you can go. And so, um, yes, as I was saying, what, what, you know, what would you say in that? And you're like, oh, because I've actually run out of things to say. <laughs> Help! <laughs> Isn't yeah. that right, Josette? Ah, oh, yes, Katie, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And and being a woman in sports and, and commentary, you know, there are a growing number of women pundits and commentators now. Um, you know, when you think back 10 years, 15 years, there was Gabby Logan, and a few others who were kind of real. Yeah, Hazel Irvin, I think she was the one I remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ellie Aldroyd on Radio 5. You know, there's been people who have kind of really laid the foundations for others. Um, did you have any role models in, in kind of women in that area in sports and commentary when you got started? Or did you sort of just forge your own path, I guess, Katie, as you went along? I didn't know anybody in commentary. Hmm. I didn't there know anybody are. who did what I did. And so at the beginning, that's why there was so much fear because I really, I didn't know how much to charge. I didn't know how, you know, I didn't know anything. I used to ask for the most enormously complicated briefings, which I'm sure is a ginormous pain in the ass for the organizers, but I didn't know anybody. And I'm really fortunate. I think certainly in this day of social media, day and age of social media, I follow a lot of other commentators online um, sports commentators, sports announcers, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. And a lot of women. And what I love to see is the women doing traditionally male sports. So the football commentators or the rugby or anything that's predominantly a male oriented or, or motor racing, anything that's predominantly you would associate with men. I particularly love following them because I think that's, you know, they're all about 10, 15 years younger than me. And I think, yes, 
go for it. That's just amazing that you're at the almost at the beginning of your career, or maybe they're 20 years younger than me, you know, thinking, yeah, I'm so thrilled that that's what they do. But I've also, to sort of follow on with that, now I know more commentators. I've been able to sort of speak up and say, you know, not asking people what they earn, but just sort of going, am I even in the right ballpark mm-hmm. here? Mm-hmm. And because mm-hmm. you don't get any feedback, you either, it's a bit like, you know, when you go to the hairdresser and it's awful, you just never go back. You don't phone up the hairdresser and say, well, here's the things I don't like about the, you just don't ever go back. And the same is true for a commentator. If you do not do the job your client was expecting, they just don't call again. That's it. You never get feedback <laughs> ever. And that can be really hard, especially when you're somebody who goes, oh, I must just be really crap all the time. Oh my God. Oh. Um, so th- the fact that, you know, there are these incredible women out there now doing such, you know, great work. I mean, Gabby Logan, I just think is oh amazing. Claire Balding. And I tell you who I absolutely loved this year during the Olympics was Sam Quick. I thought she was phenomenal. So good. I watched her the whole time and I just thought for her first big gig, that was just, oh my God, she's like my new heroine. But actually it's interesting what she has spoken publicly and Alex Scott is another one speaking about the vitriol that they have received online, particularly Alex as a woman of colour. You know, you kind of think it's and incredible. And in football. Have, <clears throat> and in football. But, you know, amazing to have those opportunities. But it comes at a cost, I think, yeah. to some degree, does still, which is so sad. And, you know, we're, although we're getting there, we're so far from being over the line, not just in equality, but from women being accepted as having expertise in sports. And I think that's just so difficult. And it worries me that it would put young women off going into it unless you've got skin like rhino hide, um, but which is is still a shame, I think, Katie. Yeah, I think you're, and you're right. And I'm fortunate because I'm pretty small fry compared to all of these amazing women. And so I've never, and also I was already, I was already in my forties when I started this. So, you know, I didn't have, I, you know, I was, I was working for somebody the other day or about a month ago and, you know, I was nervous. It was a new sport and I looked around and I thought, oh my God, you're all at least 10 years younger than me. And they were sort of looking to me for the expertise and the advice. And, you know, there's suddenly that moment where you go, oh, you you think I know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. Right. Well, then I'll just shift into that gear of actually being the person who knows. what. They, but so I was already in my 40s. And even though I was really very new to it, I think I had the distinct advantage of being older, which it does make a difference. I think if I'd been in my twenties, I would never have stuck. I don't think the sort of crap that comes your way sometimes. And mine is minor, super, super minor. You have got the benefit of experience in so many other areas. And actually there's something about age that just confers wisdom and confidence, which is a sad fact of life. I think you can be brilliant in your early twenties and knowledgeable but somebody who's older than you will still have more gravitas, even if they have less knowledge, because that's just what happens with age. But it is difficult for young women, I think, sometimes, isn't it? I think it? it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, 
yeah, I would have been terrible in my 20s. I really would have. And also, you know, I I have a very fortunate, you know, I'm in a very fortunate position. You know, I I get to be a, a, much of the time still a stay-at-home mum. I can pick and choose when I work. My husband has a good job. And so a lot of the time, you know, I wasn't, you know, I did a bucket ton of stuff for free. Oh my God, I did so much stuff for free at the beginning. I was like, just give me all the experience. I'll do it. It doesn't matter. But I could afford that. And that I know that sounds maybe a bit snotty or a bit privileged or whatever. And I am very aware of that. But I was, I had that in my 20s. I would never have had that luxury of being able to say, you know, I'll do it for free or I'll put up with your shit just because I you know, I just really need the job sort of thing, which I did. You know, I did do that. That first year in England was miserable because I needed the work. I needed the money and I didn't want to go home. So, yeah, totally. Um, just before we wrap up, because I'm conscious of your time, tell me about your tell me about your podcast first, Katie. How did that come about and what made you want to start a podcast in the first place? Well, my podcast is called Chatting to a Friend, which, as you can imagine, made me jump for joy at my own cleverness for about a week. As <laughs> In fact, I still just kind of think I'm quite clever with that title. But anyway, I uh, started it as a lockdown project and I'm going to have to admit something really bad here, but I hardly ever listened to podcasts. I had listened to about two, I think, before I'd started my own and they were like true crime, you know, drama type things. Anyway, so it didn't come from being inspired by amazing podcasters, although I know there are some phenomenal ones out there. It came from a lockdown project. I had my kids at home. I obviously had zero work, like literally all of a sudden overnight, I had no work. And I had the kids at home, which I really actually secretly enjoyed because it was like two months of having them to myself, (laughs) which I wasn't expecting ever to have again, which was really lovely. And but I do like a project. And so I sort of started thinking about what I could do. And I looked at, you know, helping clients perhaps that um, we're needing to do more stuff online. So I set up a little studio in our spare room because clearly we weren't having any uh, visitors either. And and it just sort of sprung from there. I, I can, honestly cannot remember why I thought of doing a podcast, but I just sort of, I bought one of those, you know, those online courses where it says, this is worth like a bazillion pounds and you can have it for 45, which you know is nonsense, but I got sucked in by the marketing and it was really super useful. And it did everything from the technical side to how to interview, you know, how to set your niche or da, da, da. And it sort of evolved over the months of prepping it. And it turned into this, a bit like you interviewing just really super amazing women who, quite frankly, if even if nobody is ever listening, I just have the sheer privilege of having them to myself for an hour. Like women, you would never have the chance to sit <laughs> sit next to at a dinner party um, and, you know, yak their ear off. Um, and I love it. I just am so inspired. And I don't know about you, but I feel like it has been the biggest free masterclass in life that I could ever have hoped for ever. I think it's the most extraordinary privilege to have these women, to to learn from them, to hear their stories. And every single one I come away going, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Or, or there's a thing that I would like to put in my life. And it's just, I love it. I love it so much. 
Mm. Oh, wonderful. Oh, Katie. Well, listen, it has been, this interview has been full of so many gems of wisdom and winding conversation that I have just so enjoyed. So many insights that you've given about working life and the path to success, really, and, and really forging a freelance career that has been varied and interesting. And really, I love the fact that you extol the virtues of remaining a part-time stay-at-home mother, because I think, again, when we chat about careers, often that can be sidelined as a career in its own right. And it strikes me that you speak about parenting with great joy and and a real amount of pleasure, which is wonderful to hear, actually, Katie, to be honest. I think a lot of women sometimes feel pressure to say that they would rather be at work than looking after their children. Well, that's why I started going back to work, let's be honest. <laughs> but I have found the balance because I thought, I, I just thought, as I said at the beginning, I thought I would be a stay-at-home mum and that would be enough. And it just wasn't. And I love my kids and I love being a mum. But man, I needed something else in my life. I seriously needed it. And I'm so fortunate that I get to have both now. And that's, I understand, a huge privilege that not everybody gets but I I feel like I found the balance and they're getting older so then I can afford to put in more work you know and it's just it's lovely I really love it and I've the 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 privilege of having been able to spend that much time with my kids is something I will never take for granted. Katie Friend thank you so much for your time it's been such a joy to chat to you and thank you thank you thank you for coming on Smashing the Ceiling this week. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend as we are always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the show on iTunes or give us a shout out on your own socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.